1: and neighbors, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and on this Friday, February 4, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital, welcome to this week's Reporters' Roundtable, where we look back at the news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. It's kind of like Washington Week in Review on podcast. A lot of news this week on the January 6 front. The select committee interviewed a couple of top people from the Trump administration. New documents show that Trump tried to get three federal agencies to seize voting machines, and in Texas, Trump actually called for more protests in the streets and promised to pardon those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Meanwhile, Republicans are divided over whether to side with Ukraine or Russia and whether to support what African-American woman Biden picks for the Supreme Court, or put up an all-out fight against her. Wow, so much to talk about, so let's dive right in with today's panel. Jennifer Haberkorn, congressional reporter for the LA Times, Hunter Walker, political newsletter, has his political newsletter, The Uprising, and a contributor to Rolling Stone Magazine, and Linda Feldman joining us for the first time today. Welcome, Linda, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Well, let's start with uh, President Biden's day yesterday. Even veteran uh, White House reporters had a hard time keeping up with the president yesterday. uh, A day appearing in three different locations on three different issues and saying pretty important things at each one. Uh, Let's start with the president at the White House yesterday morning talking about a dramatic event in Syria that none of us knew ahead of time was happening or about to happen Here is the president's announcement of what came down. United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world, the global leader of ISIS. Our forces carried out the operation with their signature preparation and precision, and I directed the Department of Defense to take every precaution possible to minimize civilian casualties. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. So, Linda Feldman, you cover the White House. This is a, uh, a side of Biden that we uh, hadn't seen before, a tough Biden on foreign policy. Um, unexpected, but what's, the, uh, what's been the reaction, Linda?
2: Well, the, the reaction is that this is uh, evidence that Joe Biden knows that he needs a, a major national security win, uh, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan was was chaotic, mm-hmm. and uh, he also is known for uh, his opposition uh, during the Obama administration when he was vice president for uh, opposing the uh, the military operation that successfully got Bin Laden. You know they didn't know up front that it would be successful. He thought it wasn't the time to go. Barack Obama made the call. It worked, but Biden has been you know touted as not often not making the right call on foreign policy issues. Mm -hmm. He supported the the war in Iraq, for example. So now, uh, so this was a big win for him, uh, much needed. And, but what did the press do? They wanted evidence that, (laughs) (laughs) that, uh, the raid that killed the Islamic state leader didn't, uh, Harm any Americans, and that we didn't, and that we didn't kill any children. So th- the story is that that uh, Haji Abdullah mm. uh, killed himself and uh, a bunch of women and children when they were closing in, and that it was it. Was not American forces that killed them?
1: And he did, in fact, detonate a bomb um, that that had obviously been planted there for that purpose, right? In fact, the
2: right—that's the story. But the American reporters wanted uh, wanted evidence, and so you had. Um, Uh, you know, people challenging uh, Biden administration spokespeople on this and asking for evidence. And, of course, they won't provide it.
1: Right. So if that was a different side of Biden than we've seen before, uh, Hunter, the president went up to New York and sat alongside the new mayor, uh, former police captain of uh, New York City. Uh, And this was Democrat Joe Biden, who said up there yesterday, I'm quoting from his remarks, quote, the answer is not to defund the police. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to give you the tools, the training, the funding to be partners, to be protectors. Again, under, this is Biden showing law, law and order or crime. Uh, I'm tough.
0: huh? <laughs> well, Adams has sort of been held up as, you know, an avatar for the crowd that was hoping to hear a Democrat push back on these more left-wing defund the police messages. Right. Um, He ran, it's very interesting because in his career, he actually kind of kicked off his involvement in politics by challenging the Rudy Giuliani era NYPD for abusive practices. But Mm -hmm. on the campaign trail, Uh, He and the New York City tabloids very much, you know, cast his candidacy as kind of an effort to fight, you know, what has been characterized as a really large crime wave. Um, There is a recent spike in violent crime. Um, It's in line with, you know, what we've seen nationwide during COVID. Um, But, uh, you know, it's nothing... Uh, compared to what New York had even you know in the early parts of the 2010s um, but you did see the White House and Biden uh, lean into that narrative a little bit and and if you will try to take a little bit of Adams's shine although of course um, Molly Ball of time noted that you know even while people were saying, oh look Biden wants to be seen with Adams uh, the national press pool was not really given any access to this meeting <laughs>
1: always those pesky details, right, (laughs) that follow you up. But uh, compared to last summer when so many Democrats were saying, even members of Congress, defund the police, um, uh, I I thought it was notable that the Democratic President of the United States this year was in New York saying that is not the answer. So then... Uh, Jen Haberkorn, the president started out, I don't know whether you were there yesterday, actually at the prayer breakfast here in Washington, D.C., where in recognizing members of the audience who were there uh, or uh, other leaders who were there, uh, he had a couple of words to say about Mitch McConnell, Here's the president. Mitch, I don't want to hurt your reputation, but we really are friends. (laughs) And that is not an epiphany we're having here at the moment. You've always you've always done exactly what you've said. you're a man of word, your word and you're a man of honor. Thank you for being my friend. Mitch McConnell, a man of his word, a man of honor. <laughs> I don't know how many Democrats would agree with that. But Jen, does this indicate any thawing of relationships between Biden and Republicans on uh, in the Senate?
3: I kind of read those comments as vintage Biden, you know, talking about how bipartisan he is and how he has these great relationships with Senate Republicans. And oh, remember when I had to cut deals with Mitch McConnell back in Obama's presidency? um, I didn't really interpret it as anything, you know, indicative of you know whether McConnell is going to support Biden's Supreme Court pick or anything like that. Um, It to me, it was. Vintage Biden making this comment that, you know, some other Democrats are going to kind of maybe silently roll their eyes and then, and then move on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or not so silently. <laughs> right. <laughs> but do you see, um, uh, we'll get to the Supreme Court pick in a little bit later, but uh, is there, we saw Lindsey Graham saying, you know, almost announcing that he could support uh, Biden's Supreme Court pick if it is Michelle Childs from South Carolina. Is is this just a one-time, one-and-done kind of thing, or, or do people feel any Republicans, indi- show any any indication of working together with Biden on any other issue?
3: Yeah, there's no indication. I mean, Lindsey Graham is kind of in his own category as someone who you know wants to show bipartisanship sometimes, but on other issues, I mean, look at you know Build Back Better, um, voting rights, basically any of the Democrats' priorities. Um, you know there's there's no thawing of relations and i think the only thing that we might see perhaps is um appropriations you know congress is going to have to mm-hmm. uh, fund the government again you know we'll see forced cooperation there most likely but um that's kind of the bottom of the barrel in terms of you know when the parties need to work together uh so so yeah, I would I would not interpret these comments as um, a thawing of relations by any means, <laughs>
1: uh, and I doubt that President Biden took them that way uh, either, or Miss or or Miss McConnell. Right. So let's, yeah, so let's jump to the overall January sixth front. President Trump, former President Trump, still uh, every occasion he has downplaying the importance of what happened on January sixth, and he did so at a rally in Texas last weekend. In a rather dramatic fashion, actually, um, promising that were he re- to run and to be reelected, he would pardon some of the people who took part in that insurrection. Here's a, a little interview, part of an interview that he gave on Newsmax, where he's asked about Lindsey Graham's response to that. You talked
0: about the potential, if it's appropriate, of pardoning some of the January 6th. Yeah. Lindsey Graham said a couple days later, he thinks that's inappropriate. What do you think?
1: Well, Lindsey Graham's wrong. I mean, Lindsey's a nice guy, but he's a rhino. Ha ha. So, Linda Feldman, here's the president saying that actually pardon the protesters, some of the protesters, uh, if you want to call them that, uh, members of the armed mob, uh, didn't get much support even among Republicans in Washington.
2: Exactly. I mean, we've we've had this group charged with seditious conspiracy, and it's, so it's getting serious. It is. This isn't just you know trespassing. There are some serious charges now on the table, and uh, we're seeing an interesting distancing from Donald Trump. I think. I mean, among some Republicans, certainly the vast majority tell pollsters they support him, but I'm seeing increasingly. Uh, Republican voters loyal trump supporters who actually don't want him to run again hmm. in 2024 and I think they they love him they loved his policies uh they're they're happy he had four years as president but they think it's time for fresh blood and so I think the trump show uh as as a sort of a campaign an early campaign vehicle isn't playing maybe how Donald Trump thinks it might. It, it is getting his base whipped up, but uh, he can't win just with his core supporters. He really needs those, those more moderate Republicans who will hold their nose and vote for him, but would really rather see a Ron DeSantis, for example, up there.
1: So Hunter, you've been doing some excellent reporting on the January 6th front uh, for your newsletter, The Uprising. Uh, Linda referenced Um, Stuart Rhodes, I guess, the head of the Oath Keepers, right, being charged with sedition. This does take these arrests to a new level, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, the Oath Keepers um, have absolutely, you know, been one of the most consequential developments of the FBI's criminal investigation. Um, And you've seen about uh, a dozen members of the group Or, I think actually around 20 members of the group overall face charges, and then the core leadership face uh, these sedition charges. The FBI has also, um, you know, leveled a lot of charges against the Proud Boys. But I think the question remains how much will criminal investigators not the house select committee Mm. do about the official components of january 6th because i think it's one thing to you know go after these people who broke into the building and to go after these these militant groups um but you know we're learning for example this week that there was this whole um massive plan with um fake electors this questionably legal plan to essentially you know hand the uh our electoral college a false slate of votes. And that plan had all sorts of involvement from GOP state chairs um, and other party officials. And then, of course, there's, you know, the component of what the White House knew about this. So, you know, the Rhodes thing is definitely a new development, but I would say it doesn't really take the criminal investigation away from the space it's already been in, which is focusing on the people who broke into the building.
1: Well, Hunter, the last time I checked, uh, the figure was about 725 arrests that, that have been made uh, uh, related to people who were involved in the insurrection. Uh, it has Is that like the end of the road? Is the FBI finished uh, its rounding up of suspects or are they still at it?
0: So the line we've heard from the DOJ is that, you know, they're taking a very traditional approach to this. So essentially, this is going to be a almost pyramidal investigation, the likes of which we see in a mafia prosecution, where they start at the bottom and work their way to the top. Uh, and the question of how long that takes, how far up the chain they go, and how they define the top is the million-dollar open question. Uh, amid all this, the the House Select Committee, which seems set to have... Um, hearing starting around April has taken almost the opposite approach. They have looked at the Oath Keepers and some of these militant groups, particularly uh, Proud Boys and First Amendment Praetorian, but they are also looking at these questions of sort of, you know, was the White House alerted to concerns of potential violence? How did Trump end up calling the crowds to march? Uh, And also, how was the military response so delayed? So they in the House Committee are looking you know at these kind of higher level questions, but of course the house select committee does not have criminal authority like the DOJ. Uh, Mm -hmm. they, they have made criminal referrals for contempt. We've seen the DOJ pick those up, but along with that question of sort of how far does the DOJ take the high level involvement here? There's a question of, you know, beyond contempt, will the justice department pick up criminal referrals from the house committee?
1: Uh, and so Jen, while it looks like the rest of the Congress is, uh, just, uh, uh, standing still, the January 6th committee keeps trucking on. I thought it was significant this week that among the people they interviewed uh, were Mark Short, um, chief of, former chief of staff to former Vice President Mike Pence, who was with Pence at the Capitol, was with, was with Pence in the White House, where a lot of those uh, conversations where Trump pressured Pence to overturn the election. And they also talked to Jeffrey Clark. Uh, from the who was acting attorney general i believe right at one time um uh, under donald trump who was the recipient of some of the pressure on the white house to seize voting machines uh does this what does this say about the january 6th committee and their work uh and how close they are to getting to trump himself
3: well, I think exactly to Hunter's point. If this is working like um, you know a mafia investigation, and you're working from the bottom up to the top, I interpreted them bringing in Mark Short as you know getting pretty close to the top. I mean, to your yeah. point that he's the um, you know was with Pence on January sixth um, was his uh, uh, you know top aide essentially. Um, but the committee has also said that. Um, we shouldn't really expect a um, report until this summer. And it makes sense politically that they would want to um, uh, put out their most comprehensive report in the summer um, after having a year of investigations and shortly ahead of the midterm elections. Um, But I mean, we're already in February. And so at some point, these investigations will have to wrap up. Um, And uh, again, it's a big question if how high they're going to go, how, um, how deep they're going to go at that highest level. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mark short did, um, respond to a subpoena. I was, I was frankly a little surprised that he even, um, appeared before them. And we still have plenty of months where the, um, the content of, uh, of these interviews are going to come out. And, you know, if, if the committee has got as much as it seems that they do, um, I could see, I could see the news coming out in, in trickles um, and not in one fell swoop. Uh,
1: and, and one sign of Trump, how, uh, how seriously Trump is taking all of this, uh, Linda, uh, we, we heard from the committee and from the archives this week. Uh, that all that a good share of the documents that came from the National Archives to the January 6th committee uh, could not be read right away because Trump had ripped them up into smaller pieces and they had to scotch tape them all back together. Uh, boy, what does that tell us?
2: So, well, I mean, my understanding actually is that Trump, yes, Trump was famous for ripping up stuff in in the Oval and that actually his staff would gather gather it up and... <laughs> Tape, you know, with like jigsaw puzzle, tape it together to comply with the Federal Records Act. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those little, kind of funny, funny not funny, yeah. uh, sidebars about Donald Trump, a little window into what he's about.
1: I mean, these are federal documents, right? That by law have to be turned over, right?
2: Uh, and, and Donald Trump does not re- use email, right? So he is handed a lot of paper. And, and then reacts to it. And sometimes that meant tearing it up.
1: Uh, one other aspect of this that I find fascinating, Hunter, that you have written about is uh, Congressman Madison Cawthorn, North Carolina, is being challenged. He's running for re-election, 26-year-old, I guess, right? Uh, total, total Trumper. Um, because there's constituents in his district who say he is ineligible to run for re-election because he is an insurrectionist. And under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, anybody who attempts to overthrow the government or is part of that effort cannot serve in federal office. Is this going anywhere, Hunter? Well, this,
0: this legal challenge uh, to Cawthorn's eligibility is currently held up um, amid all this redistricting drama. In North Carolina, Ah. essentially, it would have to be evaluated in part by a panel of residents from his district, and we don't know exactly what district (laughs) is will be. Got it. Got Um, it. But but you know, in the broad strokes, this this activist group um, helped mount this legal challenge to Cawthorn, um, and his lawyers are actually using an 1872 era law, uh, Mm -hmm. that was meant to give amnesty to Confederate soldiers, um, you know, to argue that, um, he should still be eligible. Um, I think most legal experts think this challenge is a long shot. Uh, but this group does seem interested in, in bringing similar, uh, challenges to other members. Um, you know, I think it, it might if anything, just be more of a public relations um, ploy to highlight what was unquestionably um, extensive involvement from Republican members of Congress um, in multiple aspects of the effort to overturn the election, including, you know, speaking at some of the events scheduled in DC that day, um, some of the pro-Trump events, um, questioning the election in the lead up to January 6th. um, And then also, you know, of course, being involved in the objection on the House floor, and as we're starting to hear from witnesses to the committee, uh, communicating with activists who are involved in all of these other things. So if right. the members of Congress were extensively involved, they're at the very least highlighting that. But no, I, I wouldn't bet money that this is going to be a problem for Cawthorn. And I, I also, by the way, wouldn't bet money that Trump is going to have a problem with the uh, Presidential Records Act, which is, you know, Rrap. Watergate, yeah. uh, post-Watergate legislation that does require him to preserve records. Um, because of that, the White House um, had this habit of scotch taping all of his <laughs> documents. Um <laughs> you know what was interesting was that it, in its statement the national archives said that they received some documents that were torn and not restored so it seemed like the white house stopped keeping this up but the the presidential records act as it's currently um you know been litigated a couple times in the court essentially allows presidents a lot of discretionary power over their own record keeping so it says everything should be preserved but doesn't really um you know, require them to do anything specific to do that. Um, so that's led people like um, Yale's media transparency uh, arm of their law school to call it, quote unquote, toothless. Um, what may be the most interesting in all of this, um, I've talked to people who've seen Trump do his sort of ripping ritual back at the real estate company. And apparently he oh, always oh. will rip a document in half and then rip that into quarters. And he does that when he wants <laughs> to get rid of it. So that would indicate, whether he gets in trouble or not for ripping them, that the committee has some torn quarters of documents that Trump
1: really didn't want the world to see. Uh, uh, Linda, didn't it remind you of Nancy Pelosi ripping up Trump's speech?
2: Absolutely. And I wondered if she kind of knew that about Donald Trump, right? Because she knew that he would see her doing that. She did it so so dramatically.
1: She did. And we have to add that they were not documents that, P- covered by the Federal <laughs> Records Act, right? Right, right. The, co- the copy of his speech. Okay, lots more to talk about. In fact, there was a lot of news on the media front that we members of the media uh, can't resist uh, talking about. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll get to that uh, when we come back here on uh, the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable with Linda Feldman from Christian Science Monitor, Hunter Walker from The Uprising and Rolling Stone, Jennifer Habercorn from The L.A. Times. <music> And today's roundtable is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the good men and women of the Teamsters Union nationwide. uh, One and a half million members strong, active in every aspect of the American workforce, from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in uh, St. Louis, of course, and bakery workers in Maine. As they say, they cover everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots the zookeepers, all still under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, who will be retiring soon. Uh, We salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their great work building America, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press pod.
3: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? be continued at scs.georgetown.edu/podcast
1: And we're back with today's roundtable uh, joining us on the panel today Hunter Walker from uh, his own newsletter The Uprising you should subscribe if you haven't already done so also a contributor to Rolling Stone Jennifer Habercorn congressional reporter for the LA Times and Linda Feldman Washington bureau chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Well, the news that got Washington really buzzing this week was the sudden resignation of Jeff Zucker as the president of CNN because he admits he failed to reveal, as required by company policy, a consensual relationship that he was having with another senior executive at CNN, Whoa! where do we start here? Jennifer, does the punishment fit the crime? He loses his job because he fell in love with someone who happened to be work, work at the same company?
3: Well, that was certainly the speculation that I heard from fellow reporters. Um, and it led to questions about, you know, whether there's more, whether this relationship is just kind of the cover for something more nefarious that, um, he didn't want to come out. Um, and I, I, I can't claim to have any inside information on that, but I do think in the era of me too, that, um, uh, you know, if, if, if the requirement is that you disclose a relationship that, um, you know, uh, even the most senior executive executives need to follow that. And it, it does sound like this relationship was between very senior people, but, um, clearly he was a, um, in a senior position to her and, um, you know, it's, a, the rule is there for a reason and it should be mm-hmm. followed whether that deserves to be, whether you deserve to be fired for violating that is, is a different story, but, um, uh, these rules need to be followed.
1: And we know, um, Hunter, that this, uh, this, the fact of the relationship, uh, came out, as part of the investigation into the firing of their lead anchor, Chris Cuomo, who, of course, was fired because he was helping his brother, Andrew Cuomo, uh, lesson learned, Hunter, don't mess with the Cuomo <laughs> brothers.
0: Well, as Chris Cuomo himself might say, Bill, let's get after it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the Cuomo connection there is, is, Part of the reason a lot of people are are skeptical of sort of the official storyline here. I think another part of it, I mean, you know, I uh way back when, 10 or 12 years ago, worked in the TV trades out in Hollywood. Um, and this woman, Alison Gallist, was, you know, still, you know, sort of one of Jeff Zucker's top PR aides at the time. So they've had this really long standing association through multiple networks. Yeah. Um right. And rumors were flying for years. I mean, there was this whole incident at a party where the two of them had a fight that was, you know, um, dutifully chronicled by the Daily Mail, the Hollywood Reporter, and the New York gossip pages. Um And then they released this statement saying like, oh, it's this consensual relationship that, you know, changed in the past two years. And it's like, uh, this was a, this was in Katie Couric's book. Like this was in the gossip pages. (laughs) I don't think anyone really who's been following the media world at all really believes this was kind of a recent two year thing. Um, And now there are sources I'm telling Rolling Stone that that part of what happened here um, was that, I guess. In the internal investigation over the Chris Cuomo matter, um, some documents came forward that seemed to show that that Jeff and Allison were advising Andrew Cuomo just like Chris does, uh, just like Chris was, and and that wouldn't be shocking. uh necess- I mean, it would be shocking in terms of media ethics, but Allison Gallist had already been part of Andrew Cuomo's comms team. So essentially, what you have here is a mm-hmm. world where these two have been close for years, maybe blurred some lines. Chris and Andrew Cuomo certainly blurred some lines. CNN was okay with that blurring of lines, but you know amid, amid Andrew Cuomo's woes, all of this has kind of been exposed and, and seems to be bringing a lot of people down.
1: Well, he was one of the most powerful figures in uh, the American media. But Linda, uh, the bottom line is CNN was fine before Mm -hmm. Jeff Zucker and it'll be okay without Jeff Zucker. Right.
2: Right. And I think we also have to factor in uh, that CNN is about to change ownership. So it's owned by AT&T, right. And Mm -hmm. AT&T is now in a deal with discovery. Um, And it's, I think, I mean, this is pure speculation, but you also have to wonder, I mean, CNN's ratings have been down quite a lot and that, Maybe they just want a reboot and that this this relationship with Alison Gallist was a, a, a good excuse to have a change in leadership.
1: On the other media matter, uh, <laughs> they flapped this week over Joe Rogan's podcast. I must confess, I've listened to his podcast only once. He's not particularly my brand of tea. Uh, but I guess the question is, can someone who has a podcast like mine or yours, some of you have podcasts, um or has a, a, a show, just put on people who are just telling absolute lies, particularly when it comes to something as important in COVID, as COVID, and then defend that as uh, I'm merely exercising or letting them exercise freedom of speech. Where do we come down on this? Um, who starts? Jen, start with you. Um, how, how, do well, we, how do we view this? As members you know, what, of the media,
3: <laughs> what was most troubling to me was Spotify saying that um, it's a platform, not a publisher, and and for that reason, it couldn't be yeah. responsible for what um, Joe Rogan was saying. And um, you know, we're in this era where journalists have a lot of autonomy. You know, we can tweet, mm-hmm. we can have our own newsletters, we can podcast, um, but at the end of the day at least my personal perspective is that I'm responsible for the things that I put out there. And maybe that's my personal journalism ethics, but um, you have to have some responsibility for what you're putting out into the world. And um, uh, Rogan doesn't purport himself to be a journalist. I guess for that, I'm grateful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But there's still some responsibility for what he's putting out into the world and for the person who's, um, you know, helping him do so.
1: So Linda, Joni uh, Mitchell and uh, Neil Young were right.
2: (laughs) What, to to quit Spotify? I don't know. I mean, what are they? I mean, in a way, they're just helping advertise Joe Rogan's podcast, although I don't know that he needs any help. But I think it's interesting. Uh, to note that Spotify uh, on Sunday announced that they're going to introduce a content advisory yeah. to any podcast episode that discusses COVID. Um, so that is sort of an implicit, an implicit admission that there may have been problems with some statements on the Rogan podcast and that they need to protect themselves, even though it's, you know, there, it's a private company they you know, they can, uh, they can host whatever speech they want to host, and i always, I always like that Louis Brandeis quote where the uh the remedy is to have more speech, mm-hmm. not enforce silence um so you know i I'm not a Spotify subscriber, I'm sad that my my husband is, and he's sad to see those blank spots where Neil Young and Joni Mitchell used to be on his playlist, but right. you know we can go to other places to hear them, so uh I'm not sure in the end what they're accomplishing.
1: It's a tricky issue, Hunter, and I always come, end up wrestling with the question, yes, these quack doctors or anti-scientists are free to say whatever they want to say, but does that mean they're free to say it on national television and national radio, that the, the sponsors or the platforms or the networks have to put them on and give them that national platform? I mean, it's
0: it's a really thorny question, and 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 forgive me for doing this, but if I was to look at Neil Young, I might say, you know, <laughs> old man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you are, um, um, because you know what Neil did was take himself off Spotify, which which absolutely platforms Joe Rogan, who it, it, it should be noted has a massive audience that he yeah. built with some pretty questionable stuff on largely YouTube. Prior to going to Spotify, mm-hmm. Neil Young then makes the show of taking himself to Amazon, which you know they've taken some of them down, but they've hosted tons of anti-vax documentaries. And I saw—I'm not going to name this person—but I saw one famed author saying, "I'm pulling my podcast off Spotify." Um, and this is an author who's making thousands of dollars every month with a Substack newsletter. And my my newsletter is on Substack too, but so is a lot of really awful anti-vaccine. Um, mm. Content. So I think, you know, for those of us in the media, these are thorny, thornier questions than we yep. might like, um, both because we're all tied, you know, a lot of us are tied to companies that have our hands a little bit dirty. I mean, I, I, it would be hard to find a mainstream media company that doesn't have some of the same advertisers as, you know, a Spotify or, or, or one America news even. Um, and then also as, as, you know, we were saying, I, I tend to agree with that sort of, I think every reporter has a strain of agreeing with that sort of Brandeis, you know, um, free speech absolutism. Um, and you know, all I can do in my own life is, you know, try to present the most accurate information that I can. Um, and, and combat what is inaccurate. Um, I think we should call out companies when they're being irresponsible and essentially putting rocket fuel on misinformation. Um, mm-hmm. But it needs to be a whole, much more holistic conversation than acting like, you know, this is just a problem with one podcast on Spotify.
1: Uh, and there's certainly, n- uh, not just a problem with one social media company or with one social media platform. It really, it really illustrates the ongoing problem with all of the social media platforms, all of which have gotten in trouble lately. And, uh, we haven't seen the end of that, uh, conversation, um, or issue for sure. Well, what a great wrap up of the week, uh, news of the week here from Washington, D.C. Uh, thanks so much to our panelists Jennifer Habercorn, Hunter Walker, and Linda Feldman. But before we let you go off and enjoy your weekend, there must have been one story this week, uh, good or bad, uh, happy or sad, that caught your attention and made you stop in your tracks for a couple of minutes to at least uh, think about it and ponder it. We call it our favorite story of the week. Jennifer Habercorn, what uh, what got your <laughs> your blood up? <laughs>
3: So I'm gonna um highlight a story from my colleague Evan Helper here at the um LA Times Washington Bureau. The headline is a neglected California city reinvents itself with electric cars and plots a roadmap for the nation. Um uh this is part of a series of um stories about how uh basically how Washington uh during a democratic administration really looks to California as its uh kind of think tank and uh tries to take a lot of California's policies and apply them at the national level and um uh this is this story in particular is implications for electric cars um so it's really interesting story it, part I of I read really that story was it
1: Orinda? Orinda I forget the city though but uh...
3: uh Huron
1: Oh that's right Huron yeah but it was great it was, The city just has committed itself to electric cars you know and um and you can see and then counties doing that, maybe the entire state doing. Of course, California's been way in advance in pushing electric cars, but um, from that, that, from Huron to to Bar Harbor, Maine, right? It could sweep across the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a great story, uh, and um, I hope that uh, that that light shines all the way across the country from uh, the city of Huron, California. Um, How about you, Hunter? What caught your attention?
0: (laughs) So, God bless the Associated Press odd News Desk. Let me just say that right (laughs) off the bat. Because seemingly randomly, um, (laughs) they decided to introduce the world this week to Methuselah. Um, an a four foot long, forty pound Australian lungfish, um, who, who is believed to be, she's at an aquarium in San Francisco. Yes, believed. We, we also, I should note, I don't want to misgender her. We don't know for sure that she's a she. Um, this would involve a risky blood draw that they're not going to do because of how old she is. Um, but but they are at a uh, an aquarium in San Francisco where they eat a diet of figs. Um, they apparently uh, their caretaker said she's a little picky and only likes figs when they are fresh and in season. She also gets organic blackberries, grapes and romaine lettuce and belly rubs. And she is 90 years old. She came to the States from Australia in 1938 God, um, I love her. and is is quickly catching up to a 90 95-year-old lungfish um, from the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, who used to be the oldest, Um, they passed away. So we may not have Methuselah around for much longer, Um, but she is now the oldest aquarium fish. um, And we're likely not to see another like her for some time because um, these Australian lungfish are endangered now and they can't be um, exported from Australia. So if you can get out to San Francisco, you can see this bizarre gigantic fish that likes belly rubs and her caretakers have compared her to a quote-unquote puppy and that was hands down my favorite story of this
1: week well i can see it you know the only aquarium i know in san francisco is the academy of sciences in golden gate park so uh and i've been there so many times i must have seen methuselah i don't remember her that that is
0: exactly where 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 she is so i really oh
1: i had (sighs) How could I forget her? How could I not? Man,
0: Bill, you, 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 have just disrespected Methuselah terribly.
1: (laughs) I'll have to go back, Linda Feldman. What captured your uh, attention this week?
2: Well, my favorite story is far less entertaining than the Uh, other two, but I. So I'm I'm a Bostonian, and I of course was stopped in my tracks when ESPN broke the news that Tom Brady was retiring.
0: Oh, yes.
2: What I loved about that. So I'm sad that I'm, I'm sad, but understand why he's retiring. He's allowed to retire at age 44 as the greatest of all time. But what I loved about that is that it, it got away from him. That it, the news, that ESPN figured it out. Somebody Uh leaked to them. The story broke. And (laughs) I mean, he immediately, his agent immediately countered with this is not. You know, Mr. Brady will reveal his own mm-hmm. news in his own time, and then, of course, yeah. and then the next day, the the headline on the Tampa Bay Tribune was Tom Brady to retire? Question mark. So this is so, so for somebody who's been so disciplined mm-hmm. in his in his yeah uh, uh, unbelievable NFL career for for his for his exit to be so messy. I just got a huge kick out of that.
0: Well, uh, can, can yeah. I just can I just pipe in here to say that I, I <laughs> did see a story. Uh, and I'm not even going to get into what I think of Tom Brady as a, <laughs> a, a member of the Raider Nation. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, by the way, the coach uh-huh. confirmed it was a fumble. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ooh. anyway, um, Ooh. I saw this great article that was talking about how Tom Brady is viewed in Brazil, uh, where he is not very famous because they're not into football. And he's, in fact, just Giselle Bundchen's husband, to the oh. point that he's known as Gisello.
2: <laughs> oh my, that's fantastic. I <laughs> that's love funny. that. Yeah.
1: I bet he loves it too. Uh, I have to point <laughs> out that uh, he suffered the same fate that Stephen Breyer did the week before, right?
2: Yes, yes. Breyer didn't get
1: to announce his retirement. It leaked the night before, the day before. And Tom Brady, his uh, retirement leaked the day before too. So there you there, you go. Well, I have to say, my, my favorite story is not a favorite story. It's a story that I find appalling, but it's the one that really struck me this week. And that is the decision by the McMinn County Education Board of Tennessee to ban the the novel Mouse, which has long been in schools across the country um, a part of the school curriculum. But, But eighth graders in McMinn County, Tennessee, are no longer able to read Mouse because the school board said it is unfit for eighth graders. After all, it contains the word bitch. It contains the word goddamn. And it has a sketch of a nude woman, none of which I would say is going to be news or shocking to any eighth grader uh, that I know or have ever known, when, or when I was one myself. I think it's very sad that this takes place, first of all, the, the censorship of an important uh, fact of history, the Holocaust, the kids cannot read about it or learn about it, and happens to occur in a county that has the lowest reading proficiency in the entire state of Tennessee. And Tennessee itself is among the 10 bottom states in the amount of money spent for education in this country. I think they have some other education issues that they should be concerned with in McMinn County, Tennessee, and not banning books. Hate to see that happen. So uh, on that note, we thank the members of our panel. Again, Linda Feldman. Thanks, Linda. We well, look forward to having you back. Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. Hunter Walker with his great newsletter, The Uprising on Substack and a contributor to Rolling Stone. And Jennifer Habercorn covering Congress for the LA Times. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday with our next podcast where we're talking to Sarah Longwell, who's a Republican Republican political strategist, but not a Trumper by, uh, by any means at all. So come back and see us on Tuesday. Meanwhile, uh, it's not over yet. Please take care of yourself. Continue to wear that mask. Be good, be strong, be sane, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.